So this morning we're going to be in the book of Judges. As I was saying, I've debated on whether or not to do this as a sermon series um, in the future, but uh, we're just going to cover the life of Samson this morning and talk about who Samson is, uh, talk about how Samson, the story of Samson, points us to Jesus. And to, to do that, I want to give some context this morning. Last week we covered Joshua, the person of Joshua, the book of Joshua, we talked about how Joshua was commanded by the Lord to be strong and courageous, but how that strength and that courage only comes by faith in the gospel as the Lord himself promises to be with us and to give us that strength and that courage. And so after the life of Joshua, what we'll see starting in Judges chapter 2, if you will flip there with me, what we're going to see is that Joshua is coming to the end of his leadership role and this is where the book of Judges kicks in. So Joshua, or sorry, Judges chapter 2, I'm going to start reading at verse 6 just to give us introduction context to what we'll be covering this morning. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gassah, of Gosh, sorry. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's, a, that's an important theme right there. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies." Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, 
They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. Now this gives you a, an overview of the book of Judges. What we understand from the book of Judges is that there are cycles of sin, what we call cycles of sin. It's, it's kind of like circular history. It just keeps repeating itself. These cycles of sin is that a new generation arises that forgets the work of the Lord, forgets His saving power. They fall into sin and corruption. Therefore, the Lord sends an enemy people to oppress them, to plunder them, to rule them. Under this oppression, they cry out or they, they despair or they groan. The Lord in His pity and in His compassion hears their groaning and responds by sending a Savior, what is called a judge or a deliverer. And this, this idea of judge is not like the judicial courtroom judge. Don't picture that. But it's someone who brings justice on behalf of God's people. So he's a savior. He's a deliverer from oppression. And so that's, that's the cycle. It's, it's a new generation that forgets the Lord. They fall into sin. They are overtaken by an enemy. They cry out for help. And then the Lord saves them because of his mercy. And that cycle happens seven times in the book of Judges. And as we come to the story of Samson in Judges 13, Samson is the final, the seventh of those judges who God is providing to deliver his people from their enemy. And so that's the context that we come to in the book of Judges, chapter 13 through 16, as we look at the life of Samson, who is a judge, who is promised to be a savior for God's people. So what do we learn just from the context of the book of Judges? We learn a lot of people say the book of Judges is all about sin, right? It's just cycles of sin. And that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is it's all about God's mercy for sinners. Because regardless, it says, regardless of their corruption and how each cycle they get more and more corrupt, more and more evil. They forget the Lord more and more. Even in that, God still shows compassion. He still has pity on his people. And so we could say, yes, the book of Judges is all about falling deeper and deeper into sin and corruption, but it's also how God's mercy is greater and greater for sinners than we ever imagined. And so uh, at the end of the book of Judges, it actually says in chapter 21, verse 25, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sort of captures the theme, doesn't it? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And doesn't that describe, in a way, the world we live in now? So, so right there, we could say, okay, what does the book of Judges have to say about me and our world, the world we live in? The culture we live in now says things like, do whatever is true for you. You know, follow your truth, his or her truth. Whatever feels right to you, fulfill your own needs and desires. Put yourself first. And if you feel like that's what's best for you, then that's what you should do. Some of those are kind of catchy, aren't they? <laughs> A 
We like to say some of those to ourselves, or I, I've actually given bad advice before about that. But that's, that's ultimately what's going on in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You can say Judges is a case study of what happens in a subjective society. Subjectivity versus objectivity. Subjectivity is, you know, we get to interpret what truth is based on experience and feelings and desires. Objective truth means there is a truth, the truth, and that is what we are to go after. Well, God's truth is that objective truth. So we've got a lot to learn from Samson. We, get a, we, we can get a lot from the life of Samson and of the life of Judges. Not just a good name for your pit bull or your Rottweiler, right? Samson. This is Samson, right? No, there's a lot to learn from Samson. And what is that? What we're going to learn is that Jesus is a better and greater saving warrior than Samson. So flip over to Judges chapter 13. We're going to start there as we start walking through the life of Samson. So what we're going to look at in three points is Samson's birth, and then we're going to look at Samson's life, and then we're going to look at Samson's death, and we're going to see how all of these things point us to Jesus, who is a greater Samson. Samson's birth starts in chapter 13. Starting at verse 1, it says this, And the people of Israel, again, for the seventh time now, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So what we see in this first passage, and if you were to read the rest of the chapter of 13 here, is this promise of Samson's birth. First thing we see is that it comes by word of an angel. And this isn't just any angel. In the Old Testament, there's this phrase that comes out. It's the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. And, and what we understand when we read that phrase is that this is actually a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, this is the second person of the Trinity who is showing up in, in presence before he's actually been born in the person of Jesus. So we understand Jesus has always existed, right? As the second person of the Trinity. And so here in this story, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, we understand that to be Jesus before he was Jesus. Christ before he was born in the manger. And so this angel of the Lord shows up to Manoah's wife and says, You are barren, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And, and imagine the confusion, but the joy that comes. We actually see that she believes. <laughs> she believes this promise. 
In verse 6, she actually tells her husband, when the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask where, him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And so you see, she, she seems to believe this. <laughs> She's got faith. This is really going to happen. And you actually find out that Manoah has that same kind of response. He actually prays to God later. In verse 8, he, it says, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. You see Manoah's faith. And, and husbands, let me just give us a word of encouragement. He doesn't write this off as some like emotional, oh, there goes my wife again, right? He believes her. He trusts her word. And he says, wow, let me pray. Let's see if he'll show up again and tell us what we're supposed to do with this child. This sounds amazing. And so they believe God's promise. Now what we find out is that Samson, this child who is to be born, this son, is to be a Nazarite. And that term Nazarite, you can go back if you want to read this afternoon, Numbers chapter 6. It tells you all about the Nazarite vow. But a Nazarite, the word Nazir in the Hebrew actually is another word for sanctified or set apart. It means that this person is to be devoted to the service of God. And because of that, they go through certain ritual practices. Some of those is that they are not to touch any of the fruit of the vine. Now, this is not, you know, those, those um, prohibitionists can't go to this chapter and say, see, don't drink wine. That's not what this is about. This is about a specific calling and vow that these people were to take to set them apart from the rest of the people, from the rest of the nations, but also the rest of God's people to say, we are completely devoted to the Lord. That was a, that was a Nazarite. And so they weren't to touch any fruit, fruit of the vine, wine, anything like that. They weren't to touch a dead corpse of any kind. They weren't to touch death, and they weren't to cut their hair. And so here we go, the, the beginning of the life of Samson. Now, if you were to skip over to verses 21 to 25, it says this, The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. So he did show up again to Manoah and told him all about this Nazarite vow, what was going to take place. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, Just see her faith. I just love this. The wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manadan and Zorah and Eshtile. So we have this story of a miraculous birth, right? This promised son who would begin to save his people. And this story reminds us a lot of Jesus' story, doesn't it? That Jesus also was promised to someone who was not supposed to have a child. Someone who was a virgin. And this same, almost word for word, this same promise was made to Mary. You shall conceive and bear a son. 
And that's exactly what she did. But what's neat is that the angel promised to Samson's mother, you will conceive and bear a son, and he will begin to save his people from the Philistines. But what was promised to Mary and Joseph? You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. No ifs and or buts about it. Jesus was promised to be the Savior for his people, and he became the Savior for his people. It did, it's not that he began to do the work of salvation. It's that he finished the work of salvation on the cross. That's why he said, it is finished. He accomplished what he was promised to accomplish. So in Samson's birth, we see several comparisons to Jesus, but how Jesus ultimately was the greater Samson, the greater, the greater promised Savior, and because of that, we too, like Samson, are to give our life back to him in service. You see, Samson's birth was miraculous. It was a gift from the Lord. It wasn't supposed to happen. It was complete grace that Samson was even born. And so because of that, his life was to be devoted to the Lord. And the same could be said for us. We have this book, The New City Catechism, that we've gone through before as a church. It's a devotional, and in that it has a commentary. The first question in here says, What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the devotional part of this book, in the commentary, Tim Keller is writing, and he says this, A woman once said to me, If I knew I was saved because of what I did, if I contributed to my salvation, then God couldn't ask anything of me because I'd already made a contribution. But if I'm saved by grace, sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And that's right. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus gave himself wholly for us, so now we must give ourselves wholly to him. You see, that's, that's what we're reminded of in this first point, is that Samson's very birth, his life itself, was a gift from the Lord. And that's true for us too, isn't it? Life is a gift from the Lord. Every day we wake up is a gift from the Lord, belongs to him ultimately, but also salvation itself is a gift from the Lord. And we don't, we don't give back to him in some way of trying to make him happy with us. No, we do it purely out of gratitude for what he's already done for us. Acknowledging, I wouldn't even have the breath I have today if it wasn't given to me by God. So God, Jesus gave us life, and then he saved our life so we can give him our life. That's the first thing we see. And then we see Samson's life itself. We see this. I'm not going to read all of this, but chapters 14, 15, and 16, we see Samson's life and what you could call his ministry on earth. And so I'm just going to try to walk through the timeline of what goes on in his life. First in chapter 14, we see that he, there's a wedding. He falls in love with a foreign woman, someone from the enemy, the Philistines, who have ruled over God's people for 40 years, who have oppressed them. And Samson, who is supposed to be a judge, the, the judge who delivers them from the people, instead marries one of them, falls in love with the enemy, and marries her. 
And on the way to the wedding, he finds a dead lion with some honey that he had killed earlier. And he reaches into that carcass of this lion, takes the honey and eats it on the way and also gave some to his father. Again, remember the Nazarite vow. He wasn't supposed to touch this carcass, this dead carcass. Um, So he's already breaking his Nazarite vow there. Then he has this riddle and he's at a feast. And this feast, you can almost assume that there's wine going around. And so there's another Nazarite vow he's breaking, not supposed to touch wine. Later, we actually find him in a vineyard. He's not supposed to touch the fruit of the vine. So he's breaking his vows. He gives a riddle to those who are in attendance, and they're upset because they can't solve the riddle. So they go to his new wife, and they convince her and threaten her. They say, we're going to kill you and your father and burn down his house if you don't tell us the answer to this riddle. So she tells them the answer to the riddle. Samson gets angry, goes off and kills 30 men so that he can fulfill this promise that he made, this deal, this bargain. And because of that, um, goes off in anger. That's the end of chapter 14. In chapter 15, he comes back for his wife. <laughs> he says, okay, give me my wife. I'm ready to come back. I've, you know, I've cooled off, I guess. And they say, oh, we gave her away to the best man. We thought you didn't want her anymore. We thought you were angry. So then, in a, in a fit of anger, what seems to be a fit of anger, um, it, you could say it was an act of justice. He feels wronged, so he has this act of justice. He takes foxes, and the term there could be jackals. It's some kind of wild dog. He catches all these foxes and ties them tail to tail and puts a torch between their tails and lights it on fire and turns them loose into the crops. Now, we hear this story, and we laugh, and we say, oh, that, that's a funny picture. But just imagine this. If you're a fox and your tail is tied to another tail of another fox, and you've got a fire behind you, what are you going to do? You're going to run away. (laughs) You're going to run with all your might away from that fire. The problem is, there's another fox on the other end pulling you the other direction. And so it's, it's almost, you can picture this slow, crawling incident where you got foxes fighting against each other, so you've got this slow fire that's causing all these crops to burn up. It's actually pretty genius when you think about it. Um, so there, there you go. You got all the crops burned. So what happens? They get angry and they, they go after Samson's wife and they end up doing what they had first threatened to do. They burn her and her father in their house and they kill them. So then Samson gets even more angry and he goes off and kills. Um, it says it kills 1000 of them. And he does this with the jawbone a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Now, something about the Philistines is that um, in history, if you go back and study this timeline of history, the Philistines were one of the first to really perfect the process of ironwork. That means that that made them very strong warriors and armies. They had swords, they had iron, they had all these things. And so they, they, were, they were a strong force. Samson takes out a thousand of them by themselves with a donkey's mouth. Half of a donkey's mouth. This guy was a serious warrior. And he defeated a thousand of them. It also says that before that happened, he was actually betrayed by 3,000 of his own people. People from the tribe of Judah actually turned him over, tied him up, and turned him over to the enemy 
so that they could end him. So that was chapter 15. And then chapter 16, we see Samson. He's, he's hanging out with a prostitute in the city of Gaza. And uh, again, the Philistines are waiting to capture him. And he sneaks out at night. He takes this big iron gate, carries it up to a mountain, and drops it off at the top of the mountain. This is just a show of, of strength and pride, right? This is almost a way of mocking them. Uh, he's showing off a little bit, gloating, mocking. And then in the second half is where we meet the, the person of Delilah, another woman who's not his wife that he's spending time with night after night. And then finally, after prodding and asking him, what's the secret to your strength? He finally gives in and tells her, if you cut my hair, then all my strength will go. Now, I don't know if Samson actually believed this would happen. Because throughout his life, you see, he, he keeps being able to find the power he needs to do what he wants to do in moments of, uh, in moments of frustration. And so I think what we see in the, at the end of Samson's life here, at the end of this part of his life, is um, this pride and entitlement and a presumption that I'll be able to get out of this. I, I haven't failed yet, so I'll be able to get out of this one too. And so he is captured ultimately. He's blinded. His eyes are plucked out. He's humiliated publicly. He's put on display, on display by his enemies and mocked. And at the very end, I'm skipping ahead, at the very end we see God show up in his weakness. So what do we learn from Samson's life? We learn that even in his weakness, or even in his pride, God still uses him to defeat his enemy. But he keeps giving in to his own, um, his own desires, whether that's through the lust of a woman or through this power-hungry struggle. He keeps giving in to his own personal desires. But God, even in that, uses him to defeat the enemy of his people, the Philistines. So that's Samson's life, and then we see Samson's death in chapter 16. If you would flip over there to chapter 16, I want to look at the end of that chapter, starting at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, and they said... Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, 
his right hand on one side and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in, the, in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah his father. He, judged, he had judged Israel for 20 years. So what do we learn about Samson in his death? The first is that it was pride and entitlement that actually led him to this point. He didn't think he would lose. He didn't think he would lose his power, but he did. He had forgotten the Lord, just like it describes all those generations. They forgot the Lord and all that he had done. Well, Samson had too. We also see that at the end of 16, his hair is cut. And actually, if you go back through that Nazarite vow... His hair was the last element of his Nazarite vow that he had not yet broken. He had already broken the thing about don't touch a dead corpse. He had already broken the thing about the fruit of the vine. So you could say this was kind of the last straw. But I think it was more than just this external disobedience. It was actually a heart attitude that the Lord was after. So he was captured, he was blinded, he was humiliated, and he was publicly displayed and mocked by his enemies. But even in this, we see God's long-suffering, his patience, his mercy, and his grace. Why? Because he answers Samson's prayer. And he does that in order to defeat his enemy, but he answers Samson's prayer nonetheless. But what do we learn about Samson even at the end of his life? You know, there's a lot of different interpretations about Samson, and we're going to see some good, we're going to see some bad. But even at the end of his life, what is Samson's motive in his prayer? Remember, the people were mocking God. They said, our God has delivered us from the enemy. Our God has conquered. Our God has given us this enemy into our hands. This was such an opportunity to, for Samson, like David, to say, our God is greater than your God. And he's going to deliver me. He will give me the strength. But what is Samson's prayer? He doesn't say, Lord, for your name, for your glory, give me strength one last time that I might defeat your enemies. He says this, Lord, please remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Really? Samson, after all of this, after all that I've done for you, all the strength that you've seen on display in your life, you care about your two eyes more than my own glory? But you know what? In my mercy, I'm going to use you to conquer my enemy. And so, what do we learn from this? Well, I want to go through several points of uh, kind of trying to see what we can learn from Samson, but also how Samson points us to Jesus. And so, first let's see how is Samson like Jesus, but Jesus is even better. Well, Samson's anger was motivated by justice. I really believe that. And Jesus' anger is motivated by justice too, but his anger is a perfect and righteous anger. And he brings true justice to the world. He will judge the living and the dead and pay back recompense. That's what we're told in the book of Revelation. We also see that when Samson really initiates a battle, he doesn't lose. Samson never lost a battle. 
and neither does Jesus. Actually, at the end of Revelation, Jesus wins, right? Jesus will conquer his enemy, and it, we are called, for those who have faith in Jesus, we are called conquerors, more than conquerors through Christ. Samson's enemies were totally surprised by his strength and the power of his wrath. And one day, Jesus' enemies are going to be totally surprised as well. And that's a solemn warning for those who are not in Christ, who have not repented and trusted in him, that one day, Jesus' enemies will be totally caught off guard by the strength and power of his wrath. Samson's people didn't want to follow him or recognize him as their savior. They betrayed him to the enemy, and Jesus' people did the same. We do the same to him every day of our life. So those are some ways that Samson is like Jesus, but Jesus is even greater. But then, let's look at Samson's life, several points of Samson's life where we see this comparison and pointing us to Jesus. Samson, we already saw, was miraculously born as a Savior promised to his parents by an angel. And Jesus was too. Samson was promised to begin to save God's people. Jesus was promised to finally save his people from their sins. And he finished the work he was called to do. Samson was a liar and a distorter of the truth. He was unfaithful to his vows and to the covenant with God. But Jesus is the truth. And he is always faithful to his promises and fulfilled his purpose perfectly. Samson used and chased women for personal pleasure, which ended up corrupting his character and wisdom. Jesus saw women with respect, mercy, love, and value as image bearers of God. Samson felt entitled to his strength, like God would never take it away. He used it for personal gain and glory and pleasure, but Jesus emptied himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself for the sake of others, putting others before himself. Samson cared about justice and retribution with imperfect execution, but Jesus is the perfectly righteous judge. Samson cried out to God in his final moments and was helped by God and strengthened. Jesus cried out, Father, God, why have you forsaken me? Felt forsaken by his own God, Father. Samson's prayer was for his own revenge and his own name and his own glory. Jesus' prayer leading up to his death was that God would glorify himself and that God would receive glory in his death. Samson died in order to defeat his enemies out of anger and guilt and dependence on God as an act of vengeance. Jesus died to save his enemies. We were the enemies of God, and yet Christ died for us. He did this out of love as God himself and as an act of grace and mercy. Samson died and stayed dead. He was buried in the tomb of Manoah, his father. But death could not hold Jesus in the grave. He rose from the dead and conquered death. Samson was a savior and a warrior for God's people for a time. But Jesus is the saving warrior of God's people for all time. Samson's life demonstrates our need for a perfect savior. And Jesus is that perfect savior. 
Isn't that neat, just how you can walk through the life of Samson and see how Jesus is actually the greater Samson? And so what does this mean for us? What, what's the question we ask ourselves? So, so what are you telling me? Am I supposed to be like Samson or am I not supposed to be like Samson? And the answer is yes and no. Because in reality, in many ways, we are like Samson in all the negative ways. But also, just as Samson was beginning to look a little bit like Jesus, the Bible promises that God began a work in us, and that work is that he is making us more like Christ. Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 34 says this, What more shall we say? This is at the very end of what's called the Hall of Faith. All the people of faith from the Old Testament. It says, what, what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Those are all judges. Of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The book of Hebrews tells us that Samson had faith. Didn't look like it, did it? I just read this whole story. I just summarized the whole life of Samson. Didn't look like he was very faithful. What does that tell us? It tells us that even sinners can be saved by grace through faith and be used by God to fulfill his work and his plans. God uses sinners because sinners are his only option. You and me are his only option on earth. He sent Jesus, and now Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is using his people who are weak and feeble to accomplish his great work on earth, making disciples of all nations, bringing the kingdom of God, conquering the enemy through love and through evangelism and through salvation and through repentance. And he uses weak sinners to do it. Because as the Bible says, as Paul says, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. You see, what we learn from Samson is that often it takes serious humbling and weakening for us to really be prepared by God to be used for his kingdom. And so what do we do with this? We repent of our sins. We acknowledge that everything good in us comes from God himself. We believe in Jesus because we are like Samson in many ways. We too can be power-hungry, tempted to lust, quick-tempered, hating others. But the promise by grace through the Holy Spirit, through faith, is that he is making us more like Christ. It took Samson losing everything to learn that God is everything. And so we can learn from Samson. We can learn to not be like Samson. We can learn that we are like Samson. And we can learn that God is making us more like Christ um, in all the good ways that Samson points us to Christ. And so would you pray with me as we pray that he would do this in us? Father God, we thank you for uh, this story, which is inspired by you, the Holy Spirit, and how in many ways we see ourselves in Samson's sins and struggles, but also, Lord, how this imperfect Savior, this imperfect judge points us to the perfect Savior and judge of God's people, 
Jesus himself. Jesus, we thank you that you are a savior for sinners and that you use us to fulfill your work on earth. Would you help us to be willing to be used by you? Humble us where we need humbling so that we might know that it is your strength that fulfills what you have called us to do. I pray this by the power of your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen.